0: This morning we're going to be in John, First John, rather, chapter 1, chapter 4. I'll get it together in a second. First John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. That's going to be our text this morning. If you'll turn there. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Now, we're getting back into our study of doctrine and devotion. We've had this, this series through 1 John about doctrine and devotion Before we read the text, I just want to remind you of some background information about 1 John and about the writings that John was given to his church um, in the time period that 1 John and the setting that 1 John takes place in. Um, The apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is writing his beloved church because there have been some false teachers that had taught some unorthodox or some heretical ideas, and they had... There was several people that had left the church. And so because of this, the church was having some issues of confidence, having some issues and questions of orthodoxy, of right theology, of right beliefs. And so John's writing to them to establish them in orthodox theology, to establish them and affirm their faith and to encourage them and to give them assurance of their salvation because of some of the the heresies and issues that were happening in their day. So, John is writing them, and he's teaching them, and he's encouraging them to continue in the faith that Christ handed down to the apostles and to the apostles as they handed it down to the churches. And so, that's what the purpose of 1 John is. And so, in this, we see two major facets that is, doctrine and devotion. And so, that is what John is writing, that's the lens from which John is writing 1 John under the context of doctrine and devotion. So that's kind of the background, if you will remember, um, from our studies thus far in 1 John. So if you will, open to 1 John chapter 4. We'll read verses 7 through 21 together. The word of the Lord says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If anyone who does not No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So this is our text, and this is what we're going to be studying this morning. And we're going to look at the major repetitive theme in this text, that is love. In this portion of our text in 1 John, John's going to identify the main motivation of our Christian life and expose to us a key component or a key characteristic of the nature of God, that is love. And so some of you know my past and some of you don't. So for those who don't, I want to share something with you. I spent four years attached to a submarine. Of those four years, about one and a half of those years was spent underwater. Now, that might sound cool, but it's really not because when you're underwater, there's no windows. There's no really entertainment and stuff like that. So there's some things that you don't get on a submarine when you're out to sea. Fresh air is one of them. Um, Fresh food is another one. It's all frozen or refrigerated. But There's other things that you don't get when you're on a submarine out to sea. You don't get calls or hugs from your wife. You don't get any phone calls. You don't get any sunlight. And you don't get any days off. You get hours, but no days. And so as you can imagine being stuck in a metal tube under the sea for one and a half years, not all at the same time, mind you. Thank goodness. There's only so many reruns you can watch of the Pitch Perfect or the John Wick, or the Jason Bourne series, or Frozen, (laughs) before you're ready to go home and to drink some hot cocoa and to watch some Hallmark movies. And so there was one specific deployment where I told my wife, hey, through an email, because that's all the way we could communicate was emails, very sporadically. I said, hey, when I get home, this is what I want to do. I want to watch some Hallmark movies with you. And she was like, what? Who does that? Um, well, you know, because so much John Wick and so much Jason Bourne only go so far, and you've got to have something to balance it out, and Hallmark is what it is. But you might be asking, why Hallmark? And let me explain this to you. And, and this was kind of my, my way of thinking. In a, every Hallmark movie I've seen, in the beginning, you know how it's going to end. There's something special about that. Um, maybe that's why we watch them at Christmas time. There's this, there's this theme that develops, this plot that, that develops through the interactions and through the actions of the characters. And you know what it is. The guy gets the girl and they live happily ever after. But the two characters, the guy and the girl, they don't actually tell each other explicitly that they like each other. And so it's these little hints that the guy or the girl drops and the other has to pick up as if they're reading some cryptic message. And eventually it all works out. But that develops some tension, right? Because it would just be way easier. And hey, my single yams, if you're looking for a spouse, the best way to do is say, hey, I like you. And not to hint around about it because then you lose out. Right. But that's what happens in the movie. And that develops tension. And that tension then is resolved through the actions and the interactions of the characters. And so um, when that is resolved, those characters usually pick up the hints. They usually uh, say, oh, hey, this person likes me. And then they had this grand wedding or this grand like uh, thing. And the whole time, this movie has been pushing this idea of love throughout the plot. And so we have this definition of love that is carried through the story. And how do we know that they love each other? Well, we know because of their actions and their interactions because they never just outright say it until the end. And so that's cool about Hallmark movies. And so that's why I wanted to watch them. It's cheerful, it's happy, it's yada yada. And um, this month I'll be married for 12 years and there's ups and downs in marriage. And it's not always all cheesy and peachy and keen like the Hallmark movies suggest, but it's always good to have that hopeful idea and that reality of love. And that's what makes Hallmark movies so good. Is because this idea of love. And so that's what we're going to see about our life this morning in the text. We're going to see this idea of love. But we're not going to see a cheesy, middle school, giddy idea of love. You know, we're going to see a deep, a rooted, and a thorough definition, a good and and a beautiful demonstration of love, and then the requirement and the desire for us to, to reciprocate that love to one another. And so that's the idea that we're going to consider this morning in, uh, in our text that love is real, it's deep, and it's independent of feelings. And the Apostle John's going to help us see this definition of love. He's going to show us that it's defined by the character and nature of the living triune God. He's going to show us that, that it's demonstrated in. Jesus Christ, as God sent his son to be be our propitiation. And we're going to see how that love, the definition of love being rooted in the triune God, and the demonstration of love being in that God gave his son to be our propitiation, empowers us and drives us to reciprocate that for one another. And so the first aspect of our text is one I'd like us to, to consider and to look at is the definition of love. So, if you will, look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. And so we see this definition of love being rooted in the, having its origin in God himself. God is love. He's continuing this thought that between verses 6 and 7, it almost looks like if you will remember back in the, in the first part of chapter 4, um, you know, if you test the spirits, um, there's this dichotomy between who knows God or who is from God and who is not from God. And there, it seems like John is changing the subject here, so to speak, but he's not. I don't think so. I think he's continuing this dichotomy between the people of God and the people that are not of God. And he's showing that the people of God love and he's pulling this love aspect from, uh, from, upon the people of God. And so he's saying the people of God love while the people that are not of God do not love. He's continuing his thought and he's progressing this thought and he's going to mature it through this idea of love. And so he so that we must consider then in verse seven that the command to love one another is built upon obeying God and being the people of God. It's not possible for those to um, to carry out this command if they are not the people of God. So that's why we we, we must recognize that if we're going to carry out the command of God, it's rooted in some way and it's connected in some way with the spirit of truth. That is, while we strongly recognize that the origin of love is God himself. John's bringing to light the fact that doctrine devoid of love is devoid of God. He's bringing to light that devotion devoid of love is no devotion at all. At best, it's just something you do. And at worst, it's idolatry. And so John is bringing this to light that love is one of the main motivations of the Christian faith because love is rooted in the character and nature of God. So the definition of love has its origin in God. Also, we must see that when we say things about love, how we define love, how we care about love, how we think about love, as it's rooted in the Father, as it's rooted in God himself, when we attribute something to the idea or definition of love that is ungodly, we have devalued and removed a characteristic and an aspect of God himself. There is no um, avenue, aspect, or idea about love that can be in contradiction with any other aspect of the nature of God himself. So we must speak rightly about love. We must think rightly about love. And we must think about it having its origin in God himself and his nature and his character. So that's why John says that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God because the natural man or the lost person doesn't really have the ability to rightly and truly love because they have not known the person from whom love, love originates. This might get a little confusing, but let me illustrate it this way. The, mat- the natural man, the one that does not know God, cannot love rightly because their state of suppressing the knowledge of God, they live in a state where they suppress the knowledge of God constantly, and therefore they can only imitate, they can only imitate what they see Christians um, do with love. And we can know this because if you think about the world's definition of love, if you think about the society's definition of love, if you think about the modern mantra, well, just love is love. It has so many false premises, so many misguided ideas about that statement, so many things that are loaded in that statement that are not pure, that are not holy, that are not wholesome, that contradict with the character and nature of God himself. So that is why the natural man cannot love rightly or truly, because they have not known the one who is love. So that leads us to this idea that not only is the definition of love um defined by its origin but the definition of love true love is rooted in an experiential knowledge of god so john shows us that those who not love do not know god because it's an impar- it's an integral part of god's character so you have to know god experientially to know his character and you have to know god experientially to understand and to value and to image and to have a right definition of love it takes an experiential knowledge of God in order to have an experiential knowledge of love. And so that leads us to ask ourselves a question. We have to this has to confront us in some way and we have to ask ourselves this question, do I love like God loves? Do I love God's people? And if the answer is anything other than yes, then we have to check ourselves at the door. It doesn't mean we can't have differences of opinion. It doesn't mean we can have disagreements. But it does mean that we have to love in the way that God loves. We have to have the same perspective of love that God has. And God has loved us through his grace. This means that we have to look at each other with grace-filled eyes. It means that that the immense kindness of God, the immense kindness that God has shown to us is an expression of love that obligates, that motivates, and that calibrates our love for others. It first takes an experiential knowledge of God to define love and its operational capability and total, 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 the totalness of it for us to experience love, for us to reciprocate that to other people. So the definition of love is important. It's so, much, it's so important, so that the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of John, states that those who lack love, they lack God. You, have, you don't have love, you don't have God. Because knowing God and having God, possessing God in your heart, the natural fruit of that is to love. So, this leads us to think about the character of God as a definition of love. So we have the origin of God as being, uh, I'm sorry, the origin of God as love, love is in the, love has its origin in God, sorry, love has its origin in God, love is experienced through an experiential knowledge of God, and lastly, to conclude the definition of love, we have to view it as a part of the character of God. Love is a part of the character of God. I've entitled this sermon, What Has Love Got to Do with It? Good Tina Turner song from the, what, late 90s or something? Early 80s? Or late 80s? Anyway, she says in that song, What is love but a secondhand emotion? And that's kind of how society identifies love and defines love. It's an emotion, it's a feeling, it's something you do, it's it's that, that warmth in your stomach. Like, no, it's not. It's more than that, it's not an emotion although it has emotional aspects. It's not something solely you do, although it does have implications of doing things. It's not just a a feeling, although it does have implications of feelings. It is rooted in the character and in the nature of God himself. And that is distinctly different than culture defines love to be. As a matter of fact, think about this with me. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is how Paul defines love. And he speaks of it in this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a very well-known and well-read passage at weddings, Paul talks about love and he identifies its characteristics. And so if we think about this as the character of God, we'll see a clearer definition of love in verses one through eight. It says this, if I speak with the tongue, tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He basically says I'm useless. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. But if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying here, that doctrine and devotion without love is nothing. It doesn't matter the traits and abilities you have. If you don't have love, you have nothing. But what does he say about love? Look at verse 4 with me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now we can think about love this way, but we also can identify these as characteristic and character traits of God Himself. We could go so far as to superimpose the name of God where love is. God is patient and kind. Jesus is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. God does not envy or boast. Jesus does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Does not, insist on, does not insist on his own way, it is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You see, the definition of love is intrinsically found in the character of God. And so this definition of love and its rootedness in the character of God leads us to understand how and why God would demonstrate His love for us through His Son. So, we've talked about the definition of love. And now we're going to move on to the demonstration of love. The demonstration of love in the Son through the atonement. That's the gospel of of Jesus Christ. Look with me in verses 9 and 10 in our main text in 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. In what? In the act that God sent his son to, into the world so that we might live through him. And that is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son into the world that we might live through him. It's a self-sacrificial love. God demonstrates, he puts his full character on display by sending Christ to be our propitiation. Look what John says in his gospel in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to be our atonement. The gospel of Christ is that Jesus came to save sinners from sin so that sinners may, through Jesus, do works of truth in God. God, the creator of all things, he subjected himself to the brokenness of humanity by clothing himself, the second person of the Trinity, putting on human flesh, and learning obedience through suffering, that he might redeem and ransom and rescue us from our sin, from our captivity to Satan, and deliver, our, deliver us from ourselves, that we might become a new creature created in Christ for good works, to the glory of God. This is good news for us. God did not leave us in brokenness, but yet he demonstrated his love towards us by sending his son to us and for us. John's emphasizing this point because it's it's a self-sacrificial outflowing of God's character that is love that drives us to love God and to love others. Let's put it this way. It wasn't our love for God that drove Christ to the cross. It wasn't our piety to God that drove Christ to the cross. Rather, it was God's love for us. If you look at verse 10 with me, it says this, "In, in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God loved us, and that is why he sent his son to the cross for us. That is a demonstration of God's love for us. That Jesus would be the full propitiation. That is, that word is a big word, and it's a loaded word, and it means the full atoning satisfaction of the righteous requirement of the law. It is a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life for you and me because we cannot do that. One bad thought, we're blown it. One bad deed, we've blown it. One bad cry as a three-year-old, we've blown it. One selfish act or one selfish thought or one selfish motivation, we've blown it. Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilling all of the righteous requirements of the law. And and not only did he live a perfect life, but yet he, with full endurance, he satisfied God's holy justice. God poured his wrath out upon his son for our sin, and Jesus endured it. He did that for us, that he might have a relationship with us, an intimate connection with us, that he could not have had we been left in our own sin. Jesus was crushed by the Father to ransom us, So that we would not be crushed by our own sin under the glory and the weight of the glory of God. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verses 1 through 7, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's good news, church. That's the demonstration of love that God has provided to us in his Son. And that demonstration and that, dem- that definition of love is what is the foundational core of how we reciprocate our love to one another. This greatest love demonstrated deserves mirroring. Look at verse 11 with me. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. <laughs> what he's saying here is, Because God has given His Son for us. He has crushed His Son under the weight of our sin so that we can live with Him. If He would love us that way, if He would show us love in such a magnificent way, there is no excuse for us not to love each other. If God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. This love that has been demonstrated to us, it sets the benchmark It sets the standard for us and how we ought to reciprocate our love towards one another because God has loved us first. We can love each other truly and rightly because we know God. If you are a child of God, you have experienced God's love. You have the Spirit of God in you. You can reciprocate this love to others rightly. Look, there is no offense that can make you There's no offense that someone can make against you that's greater than the offenses we've made against God and our sin. That we have accrued against our holy and living God. There's none. So there's no excuse why we can't forgive one another. There's no excuse why we cannot live in unity with one another if we are confessing Christians truly filled with the Spirit of God. Now look, I'm not trying to diminish the hurt caused by sin in your life. I know that some of you are walking around with hurt I myself, too, by people who sinned against us. And there may be people that we've also sinned against, that we've hurt. But the reality is that the Advent that we just celebrated of Christ leaves neither me nor you any room for self-righteousness or smugness against other Christians. We have to forgive. And so then, how should we live in this reality? Well, we should love one another. And that love that we have for one another is a outflowing of the love that God has given to us. This love, the love of God, it's perfected in us and with us. John says in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what he's saying here is that we exhibit and we expose the love of God with each other and so the world can see God in our midst put it this way as we love one another or as we are loved by God individually and we love one another corporately we see God in our midst we see his character we see we see the fruit of his of his nature at work in our corporate gathering and yes while we live in this flesh it's not an unblemished image there's going to be some scrapes and some bruises and God is going to redeem that one day and we're going to live in a new place with him And it will be a complete perfect image. But until then, we image God by loving one another. Jesus said this way to the apostles. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. John 13, verse 35. So this is transformational for you and I. The language that God is abiding in his people, this language that... He says in verse um, 12 right here, it says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit is the image of the Old Testament temple and tabernacle. Think of Mount, Mount Sinai. When God's spirit came down upon the mount, a glorious and a great view of God before the people of God. When the God's spirit filled the tabernacle, and, and in worship, the of glory came down and filled the temple in the time of worship. This is the image of the Spirit of God filling His people in the New Testament church. It's a love that is given by God to us, by the indwelling of God in us, and it perfects us, it unifies us. And this type of love is only possible if God Himself abides in us. That is why we look at the fruit of love and we can say, Yes, you are of God or you are not of God. God means this seriously. It's not a trivial matter. The Holy Spirit aids us and helps us to reciprocate this love for one another. Also, the the indwelling of the Spirit leads, guides, and enlightens our eyes to truths about God in us individually and in the corporate gathering. And so you'll remember in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 of our text, um, he says that, by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist that you've heard and what's coming and now is in the world already. We can acknowledge that we see the fruit of the Spirit in someone's lives by the way that they confess their doctrine and the way that they live that doctrine through their devotion. So those who don't believe that Christ has come in the flesh, they're not of God. They don't have the Spirit in them. It takes the Spirit in them and the fruit of that reality to make a right confession. And that's the evidence and that's the manifestation that the confessor has that God is in them and that he or she is in God. It's not possible without the work of the Spirit. So this reality of God dwelling in our hearts and motivating us by the works of the Holy Spirit really confirms the love that God has for us. In verse 15, he says this, whoever confesses that God is, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's the work of the Spirit. And it confirms that we are His, and the Spirit inside of us provides assurance of our salvation, and it unites us in and with God and with each other. So it also builds us up in confidence. The more we love one another, the more we are built... Each, we build each other up in confidence. The fact that we are in Christ and Christ in us brings us satisfaction to our souls. That is like a cool glass of clean water on a hot, humid summer day. It's like a refreshing spring of life that bubbles like a never-ending fountain of sweet tea at a 4th of July barbecue. I don't know if y'all have sweet tea down here, but... 4th of July barbecue. It quenches, it quenches the thoughts of punishment, relieving even the guiltiest of souls. It removes the death-quenching fear... The fear that I get above 20 feet where I can't move a muscle. It removes that and gives us a freedom to live in communion and intimacy with God and with each other. And it's love perfected in us that we have confidence in the day of judgment that we don't need to shrink back but we joyfully expect good on that day because we are in the favor of God. And it's that love that we know. It's that that spirit that dwells in us that we know that we are His and He is ours. Should we have reverential fear? Yes. But that's not the fear that John is talking about. He's talking about a fear that it is the expectation of the punishment of sin. And perfect love, love casts that fear out. Why? Because, because Jesus was crushed for our sin. And so the fear that is cast out is a fear that prevents action. It's a fear that removes intimacy with God. It's a fear that, that would be demonstrated by an animal, abused animal that has PTSD at the hands of a cruel handler. That's not how God wants us to react to him. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, if you are fearing God in this way, if you are thinking that God is angry with you and that he wants to hurt you and do bad to you, He's vindictive. He's not like that. Let me encourage you, if you're afraid of the punishment of God at the judgment, let me encourage you to get together with another believer and grow in grace that you might see God in Christ more biblically, that you might understand the depth of his love and forgiveness in Christ that he's granted to you as his child, that you would approach God in your time of need and cry out to him, Abba, Father. The afraid type posture is not the reaction that God desires for his people because that's not the demonstration of love. The demonstration of love that God has provided for us in Christ is that he has paid the penalty for our sin, that we might live in intimate communion with him joyfully. So that means that the the phrase, blessed and highly favored, is our truest reality because God does see us as his own people and he does love us this way and so he does only see good for us and that's exciting but also motivating look in verse 19 with me of our text we love because he first loved us we know that God wants good for us and we know that he wants good for us because we can we can see it in one another it, our our spirit The Lord's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his when we are in community with one another. But this does come with a warning. John does not sugarcoat it in verse 20. He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he does not. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the warning. Not all people who confess to be Christians are Christians. So let us test their fruit and see if they actually are true confessing Christians. In the like manner with John's command to test the spirits is the reality that those who say that they love God but hate their brother, they're liars. They say they have good doctrine but no devotion. They're liars. They say they have good devotion and no doctrine. They're liars. No. You have to have good doctrine that's motivated by love and good devotion that's motivated by love. And those two only can go hand in hand if the Spirit of God indwells you. And so, John shows us the illogicalness, the stupidity of a confession that's coupled with evil action. He shows us that it's not possible to love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen. Mind you, your brother is created in the image of the invisible God. We would say, sus. For those who have a confession, their actions ought to match their words. Otherwise, they be Sus. They might not be who they say they are. And that's the kind of people that John was dealing with in the first century church. They said one thing, did another. So this does ask us to examine ourselves in light of this. We have to ask, us, ask ourselves how we are reciprocating the love that God has given to us in Christ. We have to ask ourselves if we're loving each other self-sacrificially in the light that God has loved us. We have to ask ourselves, do we have communion and intimacy with God and with God's people? Do we have a warped perception of God that might breed anxiety, expecting punishment instead of having confidence in in considering the judgment of Christ? Do we shrink back when we think about who God is and His holiness? Yes, we should reverence His holiness, but yet we are a part of of his kingdom and his love for us should draw us to him and not push us away from him so we have to ask do we love christ um, this way and we have to ask do we love god's people properly then we have to ask ourselves where can we improve what areas of our life is repentance required because if we repent from our sins he is faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might have intimacy with him again. So as we conclude, to sum everything up in one statement, read verse 21 with me. And this is a commandment which we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we love God, we must also love our brothers and sisters. So what does love got to do with it? Everything. It's not a second-hand emotion or a hallmark story but rather deep and truly defined by the, by the character and nature of God, demonstrated through the Son and His self-sacrificial giving by taking our place, by taking our sin upon, upon Himself, by paying that penalty so that we may have true intimacy with Him for all eternity. Our actions do tell the story of a reality that we live inside of, And people will read us and look at us. And our story and our actions do tell us, tell them and tell each other something about ourselves, about our church, and about our God. Our actions reveal the true nature of our heart. And God, by his attributes, defines love, not our culture or anything else. God and his son demonstrates this love through the atonement. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And that. Uh, should empower and drive us. God empowers us through his Holy Spirit and commands us to reciprocate this love to one another. And we trust in Christ to us, we trust in Christ. And we also enjoy each other in this life. So let us commit this New Year's Day to walk together in love with one another today and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me with Father we thank you for the state you've given us to study your word to see how you love us and how you demonstrated your love to us and that while yet we were sinners you died for us God help us to be cognizant of this reality from this day forward and and, and help us to see that true doctrine has to be coupled with love it has to be rooted in you and true devotion has to have good doctrine it has to be motivated by love and it, and it brings a beauty in the congregation of the saints. Father, help us to love one another, although we do it imperfectly. Help us to love one another in the way that you have loved us, in the way that you've given yourself for us. Help us to bear one, with one another and help us to walk joyfully with one another and help us to look to you joyfully and expect good from you. Help us to approach you and be intimate with you because you have loved us with such a great love and help us to reciprocate that in our congregation with each other that they may know us, that we are your disciples, by the love that we have for one another. May that be our reality, Lord. Empower us by your spirit and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.